right. Good morning, guys. We are continuing our series through the Psalms this morning, and we come to Psalm 110, which expresses a longing that is present throughout the entire Old Testament and forms a large tension in the Old Testament. And that's the question, who is going to be our true king? Who is going to be our true prophet or priest? Who is going to be the righteous judge? And with every person who comes into those various offices throughout the Old Testament, there is longing and there is anticipation, but then there is eventually disappointment as those various characters fail the people of Israel in the Old Testament, which I think taps into a similar longing for all of us in our culture today. Don't we long for the perfect president who will lead us out of the mess that we're in as a country? Don't we long for the perfect pastor or church or religious leader who will bring us a deeper connection to God and a deeper connection to one another? And don't we long for the perfect judicial system and the perfect police force that will bring justice to our society? I think that that longing is fundamental to us, but what we're going to see in that text, in this text, is that there's no human being who will be able to come through for us. It's only the Messiah who will come through for us. And David, at this point in history, did not know the Messiah's name, but we know that his name is Jesus. And we're going to see in Psalm 110 that only Jesus is the true, long-expected one who can come through for us. So the first thing we see in the text is that Jesus is the long-expected king. Look with me again at Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Now, what you need to understand in this passage is that David is the sitting king. And he has been anointed by God. God literally picked him out of the crowd and had his prophet anoint his head with oil. He is God's chosen person. And David is having a vision in a time of prayer. And he is seeing into the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord having a conversation with his Lord. So the text literally says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. So Yahweh is the special name of God. It means the existing one, the God who is. But the God who is, is having a conversation with another person who is also God. And David is calling the person 
who God is talking to, his Lord. This was a really confusing passage all the way down to Jesus' day. That's because it was widely believed that the long-anticipated Messiah would be David's son, but people had trouble with what David was talking about here. And so, in Matthew twenty-two forty-five, Jesus asks this question to a group of religious leaders. He says, if David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? He's asking the question, how can somebody be both God and human? Now, the reason that the Jews in that day believed that he would be David's son is from very famous passages that we all know, like Isaiah 9, verse 6. We read it at Christmas every year. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. So the question is, how is he calling him Lord? How would he call his son Lord? Because if he's his son, then he would at best be equal to him, but in some way, he would be inferior to him. And so what David is seeing is he's seeing God the Father have a conversation with Jesus. This is long before Jesus came to the earth. And he is saying, Jesus is my Lord. Which was shocking to the people of Israel because to them, David was their Lord. This is what he's saying. Even an anointed human leader who is chosen by God to rule over a people will disappoint your expectations. Okay, let me just do a thought experiment with you real quick. Okay, I've, I've literally heard people say this, so this isn't just like conjecture. Maybe you've heard somebody in your family say something like this too. I heard that Donald Trump prayed to receive Christ in the Oval Office. And I believe that he is God's anointed leader. Have you heard somebody say something like that? Well, here's what David would say to that. Who cares? Even if that was true, which by the way, I don't believe that's true at all. Let's just be clear. <laughs> if I did believe that that was true, or about Joe Biden or any other presidential candidate coming, if I believed they were God's gift to earth, here's what David would say. It doesn't matter. Do you know why? Because they're human. In the New Testament, it says that Jesus did not trust him, entrust himself to any man because he knew what was in man. And David knows better than anybody else what is inside of the king of Israel. He knows himself. He's like, listen, guys, if you're putting your hope in me, you're toast. I am not going to be able to come through for you. And so he sees his job as the king of Israel to point Israel to the 
true king of Israel. And he says, this is what's true of the true king of Israel. Yes, he is fully human, but he is not merely human. He is also fully divine. Here is what he's recognizing, that what it would take for our true king to rescue us from ourselves would be that God would walk on the earth as a human being. And we see in the New Testament that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He was fully human. If he was sitting in the crowd here this morning, you would not be able to pick him out. Fully human. And yet, he was Emmanuel. God with us. Fully human could relate to us. God with us, powerful enough to change our situation. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not the political leader who will turn our culture around and help us win the culture war. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And we see a preview of what Jesus would do in his ministry in this passage. It says, as a result of the Lord coming to the earth and ruling, it says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. See, Jesus isn't building a political empire. He is building an inside-out kingdom. His aim is to transform the hearts of people by his Spirit so that they offer themselves willingly to him, not by means of external laws and coercion, but by means of a new heart. What our society needs is transformed people. And we as Christians need to recognize that no, no matter who is in office, they cannot change the human heart. The hope of this world is Jesus. He is the long-expected king, the one that we are truly looking for. So it's okay to be politically engaged, but you need to check your heart and make sure that you are not putting your hope in the next election in such a way that at your core, really, politics is your religion. Do you know how you can tell? By your emotional reactions. When you read through social media, when you watch the news, when you have conversations with your parents or with relatives who disagree with you politically, is your main aim to present your political case and convince them that you are right or is it to point them to King Jesus? Politically engaged while worshiping Jesus. Because he's our king. Okay, so he's our long-expected king. Secondly, we see in the text that he is also our long-expected priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David's still looking into the throne room of God, and he's seeing his Lord, his King, King Jesus, fully God, 
fully human. And he is bowing the knee before him. But then he's also recognizing this king is also a priest. He's bringing two Old Testament realities together that normally don't go together. He's saying the king who rules over his people is also the one who gives you access to God. And he says something confusing in the text to us, unless we've been careful Bible students in the past. And that is, he's promising that this coming one will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in this passage, and he's also mentioned briefly in Genesis chapter 14. Here's what happens with Melchizedek. Melchizedek has this interaction with the patriarch Abraham. So this is before the law is given and before the priesthood is set up. And at this point, Abraham is incredibly rich. And the way that you know that he's rich is because he has tons and tons of animals. And here's what happens. This strange guy, Melchizedek, shows up, has a conversation with Abraham, and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he owns, almost inexplicably. And the psalmist, David, is looking back at that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's recognizing something. That rings a bell for him. When the priesthood is established under Aaron, the truth was that all of the Israelites were to give a tenth of what they had to support the priests. Much in the same way that generous people in the church today give a tenth of what they have to support their pastor. They did the same thing then. But here was the problem that God saw with the priesthood that he instituted. Here's how it worked. The people would come to the priest when they would sin, intentionally or unintentionally. There's all different regulations for what type of animal they were supposed to be when, and there would be days of atonement where they would bring like their best lamb from their flock. But here's what would happen. These sacrifices would happen day after day and year after year, which proved that the priesthood was not working because the sacrifice was never enough. Here's the other thing that was true about that priesthood. The priest himself was a sinner. And so the priest had to continually not only be offering sacrifices for the people, he had to be offering sacrifices for himself. So here's what you would consistently and constantly feel if you were an Israelite. I can't wait until I can make the next sacrifice so that I can in some way dole my guilty conscience. But then the sacrifice would be made and they would think, I don't think that me cutting off a pigeon's head made up for me punching my neighbor in the face or whatever it was. And so everyone constantly and consistently felt guilty because the priesthood wasn't working. And so, 
David tells us that there will be a priest coming who is not part of Aaron's line, but is part of Melchizedek's line. Now, here's why that's important. Melchizedek came out of nowhere, which he's kind of a mysterious character. Some people think he was like a pre-incarnate Christ, and other people think he was just a regular dude. But here's the reality. He seems to, in the Old Testament, have no ancestry. He seems to have no beginning and no end. Seems to have no credentials. And we don't know of any instances of him committing sin or doing anything wrong. And yet, Abraham recognizes him as his priest. And in that interaction with Abraham, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Hebrews says that the reason that he blessed him was because the one who was superior was blessing the one who was inferior, which is remarkable because no one was held in more honor in Israel than Abraham. And so Jesus comes in the line of Melchizedek in this sense. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has no human ancestry in one sense. He never committed any sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. So there is no sacrifice that he needed to make for his own sin. And after discussing these things, starting in Hebrews chapter 7, this is the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews makes about Jesus as our perfect high priest. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen to this. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's the good news of Jesus being our priest. Repeated sacrifices on our part or on his part are not necessary. Jesus made one sacrifice of himself on the cross. And here is what's true about that sacrifice. It is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Which means, if you come in this morning with a guilty conscience, Jesus says, trust me, I paid for that 2,000 years ago on the cross. Do you remember when I said, it is finished? That means there is nothing for any priest to do. There is nothing for any person to do. There is nothing we can do to pay for our own sins. Jesus has done it all. It's finished. That is good news, not good advice. 
There is nothing that you have to do to absolve your sins. There is nothing that any religious institution can do to cover your sins. There is no Eucharist that you can take. There is no communion that you can take. There is no building that you can go to. There is no pastor that can give you access to God. And so a true pastor in this day will not let you call him a priest because there is only one high priest. And he gets you to God. And so a true pastor will say, I am not the Christ. Redemption Church will not bring you redemption. Our job is to point you to King Jesus who gives you redemption. And as soon as we stop doing that, we're not a church anymore. We're a religious institution that has no value, zero. Leave. Only Jesus. So here is my job, in part, is to say to you over and over again, in as many ways as I possibly can, I am not the Christ. All of us need to say that. We do not bring people to God. There is one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think this is one advantage that my kids have when it comes to knowing me. They are not confused in thinking that I am the Savior of the world, as some people seem to get with pastors. Okay, let me just give you one example of an interaction I had with my daughter, Aria, in the last couple weeks. So I was having a heated conversation with my wife. We'll leave it at that. And during that conversation, I said a cuss word. I said a cuss word, all right? And I thought my daughter Aria was occupied on her iPad, but she wasn't. And so she goes, Dad, you said a cuss word. And I love testing my kids to some degree. And I said, Aria, I didn't say a cuss word. I'm a pastor. (laughs) And I got a a smile on my face. And Aria goes, Dad, we know pastors sin too. (laughs) Right? That's true. Pastors sin too. Priests sin too. The job of the church, the job of every pastor, is to say, run to Jesus. He alone can forgive you of your sin. And I need him just as much as you do. And in the same way that you do. And I probably need him extra because, you know, pastors are super hypocrites most of the time because we feel like we have to hide our sin because of our position, which is super weird. Um, I need to talk to a counselor, not this crowd about that probably. (laughs) But, But that's true. And so some of you came in this morning with church hurt. And you're tempted to deconstruct Christianity because you're deconstructing the church. I would say it's very healthy to deconstruct the church because the church is full of sinners. And probably you're doing that because at one time you had hoped that the church 
would be the community that you long for and would bring you into closer relationship to God. But in your endeavor to look at the church with fresh eyes and to deconstruct it, please do not deconstruct Christ. Because where the church has let you down, he will never let you down. He is the true priest, the one who gives us access to God that we are longing for. So he's the long-expected king, he's the long-expected priest, and thirdly, we see that he is the long-expected judge. Psalm 110, 5 through 6, actually 5 through 7, the Lord is at your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So guys, we've lived at this time in our nation's history over the past several years that has been a flashpoint of people in a big way longing for justice. Probably unknown since the late 1960s. And so we've all seen the social media stories and the news videos that make us have this sadness come over us. Whether it comes to human trafficking or it comes to racism or it comes to abortion, I think all of us would agree this world is a messed up place. And I think all of us have probably one or two reactions to the situation that we live in. And just the flood of negative information that is coming at us in regards to the injustice and brokenness of our world. One is anger. And so we are just firing stuff off verbally in conversations. We're firing stuff off on social media. And we are ruining our relationships. We all know people like this. Many of us have been people like this. We're in an effort to do justice. We are doing violence to the people around us. So there's sort of this revengeful heart that can come out from some of us. But I think often the revenge is a reaction to widespread indifference. And so for some of us, it's just like, okay, I'm turning off the news. I'm closing my eyes to the injustice around me. I'm not going to do anything about it because I am so overwhelmed by it. I don't know what to do. I feel paralyzed by the information. And we feel guilt because of that. And then we come to a passage like this, and we're completely thrown off. Because we have Jesus, who we've just talked about as our humble priest, who has executed his wrath on the earth. And there are corpses everywhere. And Jesus, the gentle, lowly shepherd of our souls, has gotten out his sword and he has done justice. Okay. Whether you feel guilt because you've gone too far 
and taken revenge, or you've been indifferent, let me offer a different perspective on this passage that I think will free us to be people who engage in a helpful way. Jesus is the only one qualified to bring true justice. And he will. The reason that we have trouble with passages like this is we are not equipped to understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing. We don't understand how deep sin is, how widespread its effects are, and how rebellious people have been against God and the destruction that it's caused. And so I think what God is asking for from us is not that we understand why Jesus is going to bring this type of justice, but it's that we trust him. See, the hands that were wounded to save you can be trusted to do justice. Let me ask you this question. Who is more qualified to bring justice to the earth than the God-man? Than this humble soul who is calling the world as we speak to repent. Who said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through me. So let me let you off the hook. You don't have to understand hell. You don't have to understand God's wrath. You don't have to understand Jesus bringing justice to the earth. But you can trust him to do it. I was reminded of a story when I was thinking about how to handle heavy topics like this of Corey Ten Boom. So Corey Ten Boom survived a concentration camp. And she remembers trying to deal with the injustice of being in a Nazi concentration camp. And she remembers in a book called In My Father's House, sort of the impact that her dad had on her in teaching her to deal with topics that were too heavy for her. So one time, she was on a train with her dad going from one place to the other. And she asked her dad about a topic that was not age-appropriate. And her dad seemed to be ignoring her. But they were almost to the next stop of the train. And so she's like, okay, I don't think my dad heard me or he doesn't want to answer the question. And she didn't really understand. And they were getting off the train. And he said, Corey, can you grab my suitcase for me? And she was seven or eight years old. And she went to grab his suitcase and she couldn't even lift it off the ground. And she pulled and pulled and pulled, couldn't get it off the ground. And he grabbed the suitcase, and they got off the train, and they were standing on the platform. And he said, remember the question that you asked me? She said, yes. He said, that question was like that suitcase. It's too heavy for you. You can't lift it. Guys, the topic of injustice and a right response to it is too heavy for you. You have to let Jesus lift it. And here's what will counterintuitively happen. If we let Jesus be the one who brings justice, we are free to be 
courageous and active in fighting injustice in the world with love in a constructive way rather than with revenge, but we're also being encouraged out of our indifference because we don't have to solve all the world's problems. It doesn't have to be heavy for us. Okay, so here's my final question for you. We all need all of these aspects of Jesus' character. We need him to be our true king who leads us from the inside out. We need him to be our true priest who forgives us of all of our sin. And we need him to be the true judge who makes everything right in the world. But which of these is most precious to you in this moment? Which of these did you walk in longing for that you didn't even realize until we started talking about it? My encouragement to you, if you're downhearted and discouraged, is to run to Jesus. To see that human leaders and institutions are meant to disappoint you so that you need Jesus. And so let's run to him with all of our might and find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Jesus, this passage makes sense out of our experience. We've been disappointed by presidents and political leaders and religious leaders and the justice system. We've been frustrated, we've been brokenhearted, we've been cynical, we felt destroyed at times. Would you help us to be wise and like you, Jesus, to not entrust ourselves to any person, any human leader? Because we've seen from your word what is in people. But also, God, would you teach us how to be constructive, to love, to point people toward you, to be an example of a person who's changed from the inside out, to receive your forgiveness, to move forward, and to do good in this world. Pray this all in Jesus' name.